Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am back from up the country. Very sorry that I went, seeking for the southern poet's land whereon to pitch my tent. I have lost a lot of idols which were broken on the track, burnt a lot of fancy verses, and I'm glad that I am back. Further out may be the pleasant scenes of which our poets boast, but I think the country's rather more inviting round the coast. Anyway, I'll stay at present at a boarding house in town, drinking beer and lemon squashes, taking baths and cooling down. Sunny plains, great Scott, those burning wastes of barren soil and sand, with their everlasting fences stretching out across the land. Desolation where the crow is, desert where the eagle flies, paddocks where the lunny bullock starts and stares with redded eyes. Where, in clouds of dust enveloped, roasted bullock drivers creep, slowly past the sun-dried shepherd dragging behind his crawling sheep. Stunted peak of granite gleaming, glaring like a molten mass, turned from some infernal furnace on a plain devoid of grass. Miles and miles of thirsty gutters, strings of muddy waterholes, in the place of shining rivers walled by cliffs and forest bowls. Barren ridges, gullies, ridges, where the ever-maddening flies, fiercer than the plagues of Egypt, swarm about your blightened eyes. Bush, where there is no horizon, where the buried bushman sees nothing, nothing but the sameness of the rugged, stunted trees. Lonely hut where drought's eternal, suffocating atmosphere, where the god-forgotten hatter dreams of city life and beer. Treacherous tracks that trap the stranger, endless roads that gleam and glare, dark and evil-looking gullies hiding secrets here and there. Daldum flats and stony rises where the toiling bullocks bake, and the sinister goanna, and the lizard, and the snake. Land of day and night, no morning freshness, and no afternoon, where the great white sun is rising, bringeth summer heat in June. Dismal country for the exile, where the shades begin to fall, from the sad heart-breaking sunset to the new chum worst of all. Dreary land in rainy weather, with the endless clouds that drift over the bushman like a blanket that the Lord will never lift. Dismal land when it is raining, growls of floods and oh, the whoosh of rain and wind together on the dark bed of the bush. Ghastly fires in lonely humpies where the granite rocks are piled in the rain-swept wilderness that are the wildest of the wild. Land where gaunt and haggard women live alone and work like men, till their husbands, gone or droven, will return to them again. Homes of men, if home had ever such a god-forgotten place, where the wild selector's children fly before a stranger's face. Home of tragedy applauded by the dingo's dismal yell. Heaven of the shantykeeper, fitting fiend for such a hell. And the wallaroos and wombats, and of course the curlews call, and the lone sundowner tramping ever onward through it all. I am back from up the country, up the country where I went, seeking for the southern poet's land whereon to pitch my tent. I have shattered many idols out along the dusty track, burnt a lot of fancy verses, and I'm glad that I am back. I believe the southern poet's dream will not be realised till the plains are irrigated and the land is humanised. I intend to stay at present, as I said before, in town, drinking beer and lemon squashes, taking baths and cooling down. This poem was first published in the Bulletin on the 9th of July, 1892. 
Originally called Borderlands, though more commonly known now as Up the Country, it marked the beginning of what would become known as the Bulletin Debate, a series of poetical works that argued for and against the romanticisation of country life. This opening shot was fired by Henry Lawson, and if you couldn't tell from how subtle he was about it, Lawson did not believe in indulging the fantasy of bush life for the benefit of those reading about it in the city, and he would know. Born in a tent on the Grenfell Goldfields on the 17th of June, 1867, Lawson was no strange to the hardship faced by those living on the land. His father was a Norwegian sailor, Niles Hertzberg Larsen, who, after arriving in Melbourne, had stayed in Australia in the search of gold. It was on these gold fields that he'd met Louisa Albury, the two marrying when he was 32 and she was just 18. After Henry's birth, his father anglicised the name to Peter Lawson, though his son still did retain a little of his Norwegian heritage as his full name is Henry Archibald Hertzberg Lawson, after his father. However, it was the influence of his mother that can be seen most prominently in Lawson's later writings. A fascinating person in her own right, Louisa Lawson had five children, one of whom died in infancy, with Henry being her eldest. With his father often absent, Louisa would make money sewing, washing and taking in boarders, and Henry was often left to care for his younger siblings. Many believe that the image of the hard-working, resourceful, kindly and long-suffering bushwoman who would later feature in Henry's works was modelled on Louisa, particularly in his short story, The Drover's Wife. Louisa Lawson is now known as the mother of the suffragette movement in Australia, although this movement was for white women and white women only. It was through her agitation that Grenfell got its first school, a school that Henry attended for three years in what would be his singular experience of formal education. He was nine when he first started the school, and unfortunately this was also the same year that he suffered an ear infection that would leave him partially deaf. Over the next five years, this condition rapidly deteriorated so significantly that by the time he was 14, he'd suffered major and incurable hearing loss. This frustrated and isolated him for the rest of his life, leaving him feeling even more detached from a world that didn't really seem to want to have much to do with him in the first place. His schooling interrupted, young Henry travelled and worked with his father until, at the age of 17, he moved back with his mother and siblings who'd now relocated to Sydney. Here Louisa was much more in her element, and surrounded and supported by many like-minded working class agitators, she established The Dawn a feminist journal that was the first in Australia to have an all-female editing and publishing team. The magazine covered all issues, from offering household advice, uh, detailing fashion, talking about poetry, publishing short stories, and of course extensive reporting on women's activities both locally and internationally. One thing that separated The Dawn, though, from other similar international publications was its focus on the right of divorce and the issue of marital abuse. It even encouraged women to fight back against their spouses and to leave situations if they were dangerous, a rather radical thought in the 1880s. The Dawn was also very critical of the Bulletin, and the two were seen as ideological opposites, with the Bulletin much more focused on the majesty and might of the male, while the Dawn promoted the liberation of the female. But they could both agree on being super racist. So it is a little funny that Louise's son Henry would find fame in the pages of the Bulletin. Although his formal education was limited, Henry had inherited his mother's and his maternal grandfather's skill at storytelling, and managed to have his first poem published in the Bulletin on the 1st of October 1887 when he was just 20. His work, titled A Song of the Republic, which called for an Australian independence, was exactly the type of thing the readers of the Bulletin wanted to hear, and was also very indicative of the sort of themes that Henry would continue to address for the rest of his career. His fame increased in the next five years, and so by the time 1892 rolled around, Henry Lawson was not only a regular in the pages of the Bulletin, but he had also received critical praise. Some of his works published at that time were Faces in the Street, Andy's Gone with Cattle, and The Watch on the Curb, all now considered Australian classics. But unlike his contemporaries, Lawson had been more radicalised by his mother and her friends, and was less inclined to flights of fancy about the mythic Australian spirit, that which can only be found working on the land. In fact, Faces in the Street ends with, For not until a city feels red revolution's feet shall its sad people miss a while the terrors of the street, which seems to be a pretty clear-cut call for some sort of workers' uprising. 
Lawson was 25 in 1892 when he penned Up the Country, and while the tone and the subject matter were not unexpected coming from him, it did go a little against the general theme that the Bulletin promoted at the time, the theme of the glorious bush life. A theme that was necessary as it struggled to create some sort of national identity. But Lawson, who had lived in some of the harshest conditions and who had seen firsthand the plight of swaggies and sundowners, drovers and their wives, was not content with such glorification. However, there was one of his contemporaries who made his career out of the idolisation of the bush and who felt the need for a rebuttal to this grim depiction of country life. Two weeks after Up the Country was published, on the 23rd of July, the juggernaut of Australian poetry himself, Andrew Barton Patterson, the banjo, entered the debate with his own poem, In Defence of the Bush. So you're back from up the country, Mr. Lawson, where you went, and you're cursing all the business in a bitter discontent. Well, we grieve to disappoint you, and it makes us sad to hear that it wasn't cool and shady, and there wasn't plenty beer. And the loony bullock snorted when you first came into view. Well, you know it's not so often that he sees a swell like you. And the roads were hot and dusty, and the plains were burnt and brown, and no doubt you're better suited drinking lemon squash in town. Yet perchance if you should journey down the very track you went, in a month or two at furthest you would wonder what it meant, where the sun-baked earth was gasping like a creature in its pain, you would find the grasses waving like a field of summer grain. And the miles of thirsty gutters blocked with sand and choked with mud, you would find the mighty rivers with the turban-sweeping flood. For the rain and drought and sunshine makes no changes in the street, in the sullen line of buildings and the ceaseless tramp of feet. But the bush hath moods and changes, as the seasons rise and fall, and the men who know the bushland, they are loyal through it all. But you found the bush was dismal and a land of no delight. Did you chance to hear a chorus in the shearer's hut at night? Did they rise up William Riley by the campfire's cheery blaze? Did they rise him as we rose him in the good old droving days? And the women of the homesteads and the men you chanced to meet, were their faces sour and sad and like the faces in the street? And the shy selected children, were they better now or worse than the little city urchins who would greet you with a curse? Is not such a life much better than the squalid street and square where the fallen women flaunt it with the fierce electric glare? Where the seamstress piles her sewing till her eyes are sore and red in a filthy dirty attic toiling on for daily bread? Did you hear no sweeter voices in the music of the bush than the roar of trams and buses and the war whoop of the push? Did the magpies rouse your slumber with their carol sweet and strange? Did you hear the silver chiming of the bellbirds in the range? But perchance the wild bird's music by your senses was despised. For you say you'll stay in townships till the bush is civilised. Would you make it a tea garden and on Sundays have a band where the blokes might take their donners with a public close at hand? You'd better stick to Sydney and make merry with the push. For the bush will never suit you and you'll never suit the bush. Joe Patterson, author of such well-known poems as The Man from Snowy River, Clancy of the Overflow, and Waltzy Matilda, had a significantly different upbringing to that of Henry Lawson. Like Henry, Banjo's father was an immigrant, a Scotsman, Andrew Bogle Patterson, who married Australian-born Rose Isabella. Three years older than Henry, Banjo was born in 1864, just outside of Orange. In contrast to the hard conditions of the Grenfield goldfields, Banjo was born into relative wealth, as his mother came from a line of squatters. When he was seven, the family moved to the Yass district. It was here that he received his schooling, first from a governess, and then later he attended a bush school nearby. It was also here that he developed his interest and admiration of bush life, as his family lived in just the right place to hear all the stories and wonders from those travelling from the snowy mountains, just as they themselves were close enough to the luxuries of civilization. At the age of 10, Banjo was sent away to the Sydney Grammar School, where he stayed until he was 16. After graduating school, but unable to secure a scholarship at Sydney University, Banjo instead became a clerk with a law firm, Herbert Solway, where he was admitted as a solicitor in 1886 at 22 years of age. 
This was his day job when he started writing for the Bulletin under the nom de plume of the Banjo, so named for a station racehorse that was owned by his family. Even before his poetical success, Banjo, or Barty as he was known to friends and family at the time, was a well-known, liked and respected Sydney personality. He was reportedly much sought after for his companionship, was an avid sportsman and a skilled rider, becoming one of the colony's best polo players and competing as an amateur rider at Ranwick and Rosehill. He was funny, charming, handsome, athletic and a bit of a tart. He saw the world through rose-coloured glasses because he hadn't been exposed to any other sort of view. His love of poetry was said to have been fostered in him by his maternal grandmother, whom he stayed with during his Sydney school days. He started writing verses that would go on to be published in the Bulletin, although he wasn't the first of his family to have accomplished this. His father had also been published. His first poem, El Mahdi to the Australian Troops, was published in the Bulletin in February 1885. The poem questioned Australia's involvement in the war in Sudan, asking why we should fight for a Britain in a fruitless foreign conflict, in what was a departure from the general Australian consensus at the time, but very fitting for the tone of the bulletin. It was also a touch anti-Semitic, as was a lot of things in the bulletin at the time. Patterson kept writing under the name of Banjo, and in 1890 had one of his most influential works published, The Man from Snowy River. A resounding success that is still felt today, The Man from Snowy River is the exciting tale of a bushman at his finders, an underdog story, an Australian fairy tale. It has been made into three films, a TV series and an arena spectacular, as well as being featured in the Sydney Olympics, which isn't too bad for a 13 stanza poem. Faces in the Street didn't resonate like that. By 1892, Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson had established themselves as significant figures in Australia's artistic world. Yet, while they're so often mentioned in the same breath, their views on exactly the same landscape was absolutely contradictionary, something that was never made quite so clear as with the Bulletin debate. But if you think only Henry and Banjo had something to say about how different writers portray the country life, you'd be wrong. At least two other poets of the time entered into the debate, the first one being Edward Dyson with The Fact of the Matter, which was published on the 30th of July, just one week after Banjo's reply. I'm wondering why those fellas who go build and chip at ditties, about the rosy times out droving and the dust and death of cities, don't sling the bloomin' office, strike some drover for a billet, and soak up all the glory that comes handy when they fill it. Perhaps it's fun to travel cattle or to picnic with merinos, but the drover don't catch on, Sawyer. Not much high-class rapture he knows. As for sleeping on the plains there in the shadow of the spear grass, that's liked best by the juggins with a spring bed and a pier glass. And the campfire and the freedom and the blanky constellations, the possum rug and billy and the togs and stale old rations. It's strange they're only raved about by coves that dress up pretty and sport a wife and live on slap-up tucker in the city. I've tickled beef in my time clear from Clark to Riverina and shifted sheep around the shop, but blow me if I've seen a single blanky hand that didn't buck the pleasures of this kidney who wouldn't trade his blisses for a flutter down in Sydney. Night watches are delightful when the stars are really splendid to the chap who's fresh upon the job, but you bet his rapture's ended when the rain comes down in sluice heads or the cutting hailstones pelter and the sheep drift off before the wind and the horses strike for shelter. Don't take me for a howler, but I find it come annoying to hear these fellas rave about the pleasures we're enjoying when perhaps with nothing better than some flunky water handy and they're right on all the liquors, rum and beer and plenty brandy. The town is dusty maybe, but it isn't worth the curses, sighed the dust the fella swellers and the blinded thirsty nurses. When he's on the hard macdam, when the jumbacks cannot browse and the wind is in his whiskers and his followers 20,000. This droving on the plane too, it's okay when the weather isn't hot enough to curl the soles right off your upper leather. Or so cold that when the morning comes a hissing through the grasses, you can feel it cut your eyelids like a whiplash as it passes. Then there's bullets in the blankets and a lame horse and musketeers and a DT boss like Halligan or one like Humpy Peters who is mean about the tucker and can curse from start to sundown and can fight like 50 devils and whose growlers never run down. Yes, I wonder why these fellas who go building chipper ditties about the rousing times out droving and the dust and death of cities don't sling the bloomin' office, strike old Peters for the billet and soak up all the glory that comes handy when they fill it. 
With a flow of language more akin to CJ Dennis, who wouldn't appear on the scene for another decade, Edward Dyson is now virtually unknown compared to the other two debaters, though he and his family were critically acclaimed in the day. He and his siblings were renowned for their artistic skills, from writings to paintings to music. In fact, his brother Will Dyson is still considered one of Australia's finest political cartoonists and is especially remembered for his bleakly prophetic cartoon entitled Peace and the Future Cannon Fodder, which criticised the Treaty of Versailles by showing a weeping child labelled 1940 class. Later known as Australia's mining poet, Edward Dyson was also born in a goldfield at Morrison's Diggings just near Ballarat. Before he was 11, he and his family had moved four times, chasing the gold wherever it may be. Even so, Dyson had managed to secure a decent education and develop an artistic sensibility that was credited more with his affluent English mother's influence. From the age of 12 onwards, he had many jobs in the goldfields, both in Victoria and Tasmania, working both on top and underneath, and even as a drover for a time, until, at the age of 18, his family moved to Melbourne and he became a factory hand. He was only 19 when he had his first poem published, and from then on, he worked as a freelance writer and journalist until his death at the age of 66. His writings are now few, and he only published one book of work, but his work is significant as it remains one of the only poetical accounts of mining life from one who actually lived it. The experience of these brutal realities is seen in the way his prose reflects more of a working class opinion and a working class way of speech, rather than a more genteel individual speaking on behalf of the worker. If you weren't able to pick up on it yet, Edward Dyson most certainly was the type to firmly pitch his tent in Lawson's camp. But that didn't mean that Lawson needed anyone else to speak up on his behalf. One week after Dyson, Lawson published his own rebuke, originally titled In Answer to Banjo and Otherwise, but now known as The City Bushman. It was pleasant up the country, city bushman, where you went, for you sought the greener patches and you travelled like a gent, and you cursed the trams and buses and the turmoil and the push, though you know the squalid city needn't keep you from the bush. We've lately heard you singing of the plains where shade is not, and you mentioned it was dusty and all was dry and hot. True, the bush hath moods and changes, and the bushman hath them too, for he's not a poet's dummy, he's a man the same as you. But his back is growing rounder, slaving for the absentee, and his toiling wife is thinner than a country wife should be. For we notice that the faces of the folk we chance to meet should have made a greater contrast to the faces in the street. And in short, we think the bushman's being driven to the wall, and it's doubtful if his spirit will be loyal through it all. Though the bush has been romantic, and it's nice to sing about, there's a lot of patriotism that the land could do without. Sort of British workman nonsense that will perish in the scorn of the drover who is driven and the shearer who is shorn, of the struggling western farmers who have little time for rest and are ruined on selection in the sheep-infested west. Droving songs are very pretty, but they merit little thanks from the people in the country in possession of the banks, and the rise and fall of seasons suits the rise and fall of rhyme, but we know the western seasons do not run on scheduled time. For the drought will go on drying, while there's anything to dry, then it rains until you fancy it would bleach the sunny sky, then it pelters out for reason, for the downpour day and night nearly sweeps the population to the great Australian bite. It's up in northern Queensland that the seasons do their best, but it's doubtful if you ever saw a season in the west. There are years without an autumn or a winter or a spring. There are broiling dunes and summers where it rains like anything. In the bush my ears were open to the singing of the bird, but the carol of the magpie was a thing I never heard. Once the beggar rose my slumber by a shanty, it is true, but I only heard him asking, who the blankety blank are you? And the bellbird in the ranges, but his silver chime is harsh, when it's heard beside the solo of the curlew in the marsh. Yes, I heard the shearer singing William Riley out of tune. I saw him fighting round the shanty on Sunday afternoon. But the bushman isn't always trapping brumbies in the night, nor is he forever riding when the morn is fresh and bright, and he isn't always singing in the humpies on the run, and the campfire's cheery blazes are a trifle overdone. We have grumbled with the bushman round the fire on rainy days, when the smoke would blind a bullock and there wasn't any blaze. Save the blazes of our language, for we cursed the fire in turn, till the atmosphere was heated and the wood began to burn. 
Then we had to wring our blueies, which were rotten in the swags, and we saw the sugar leaking through the bottom of the bags, and we couldn't raise a chorus for the toothache and the cramp, and we spent the hours of darkness draining puddles round the camp. Would you like to change with Clancy? Go a-droving, tell us true, for we rather think that Clancy would be glad to change with you, and be something in the city, but would give your muse a shock, to be losing time and money through the footrock of the flock. And you wouldn't mind the beauties underneath the starry dome if you had a wife and children and a lot of bills at home. Did you ever guard the cattle when the night was inky black and it rained and icy water trickled gently down your back? Till your saddle-weary backbone fell a-aching to the roots and you almost felt the croaking of the bullfrog in your boots. Sit and shiver in the saddle, curse the restless stock and cough till the squatter's irate dummy cantered up to one you off. Did you find the drought and pleuro when the seasons were asleep? Felling she-oaks all the morning for a flock of starving sheep. Drinking mud instead of water, climbing trees and lopping brows for the broken-hearted bullocks and the dry and dusty cows. Do you think the bush was better in the good old droving days when the squatter ruled supremely as the king of western ways? When you got a slip of paper for the little you could earn but were forced to take provisions from the station in return? When you couldn't keep a chicken at your humpy on the rung for the squatter wouldn't let you and your work was never done? When you had to leave the missus in a lonely hut forlorn while you rose up willy-riley in the days o' you were born? Ah, we read about the droves and the shearers and the like till we wonder why such happy and romantic fellows strike. Did you fancy that the poets ought to give the bush a rest ere they raise up a rebellion like the overwritten West? Where the simple-minded bushman gets a meal and bed and rum just by riding round reporting phantom flocks that never come. Where the scalper, never travelled with the war whoop of the push, has a quiet little billet breeding rabbits in the bush. Where the idle shanty keeper never fails to make a draw, and the dummy gets his tucker through provisions in the law. Where the labour agitator, where the shearers rise in might, make his money sacrificing all his substance for the right. Where the squatter makes his fortune in the seasons rise and fall, and the poor and honest bushman has to suffer through it all. Where the drovers and the shearers and the bushman and the rest never reach the El Dorado of the poets of the West. And you think the bush is purer and that life is better there, but it doesn't seem to pay you like the squalid street and square. Pray inform us, city bushman, when you read in prose or verse, of the awful city urchin who would greet you with a curse. There are golden hearts and gutters, though the owners lack the fat, and will back a teamster's offspring to outswear a city brat. Did you think we're never jolly where the trams and buses rage? Did you hear the gods in chorus when Ritual held the stage? Did you catch the ring of sorrow in the city urchin's voice when he yelled for Billy Elton when he thumped the floor for Royce? Do the bushmen, down on pleasure, miss the everlasting stars when they drink and flirt and so go on in the glow of private bars? You're down on trams and buses, all the roar of them you said, and the filthy dirty attic where you never toiled for bread. And that selfsame attic, Lord, wherever have you been? For the struggling needlewoman mostly keeps her attic clean. But you'll find it very jolly when the cuff and collar push, and the city seems to suit you while you rave about the bush. You'll admit that up the country, more especially in drought, isn't quite El Dorado that the poets rave about. Yet at times we long to gallop where the reckless bushman rides, in the wake of startled brumbies that are flying for their hides. Long to feel the saddle tremble once again between our knees, and to hear the stockwits rattle like the rifles in the trees. Long to feel the bridle leather tugging strongly in the hand, to feel once more a little like the native of the land. And the ring of bitter feeling in the jingle of our rhymes isn't suited to the country nor the spirit of the times. Let us go together droving and returning if we live, to try to understand each other while we reckon up the div. It should be known here that the insult of British workmen was capitalised. Those who wrote and read the bulletin were staunchly anti-British and Lawson had purposely swung a particularly sharp jab there, reminding Patterson that he was no better than the Europeans that they'd left behind. But it wasn't just the Brits that the bulletin despised, it was, as I've said, a super racist publication. They hated the Chinese, the Japanese, Indians, the Jewish, the indigenous peoples, always. 
1886, the editor at the time, James Edmund, changed the bulletin's banner from Australia for the Australians to Australia for the White Man, reasoning that, and quote, By the term Australian, we mean not those who have been merely born in Australia. All white men who come to these shores with a clean record and who leave behind the memory of class distinctions and the religious differences of the old world, all men who leave the tyrant-ridden lands of Europe for freedom of speech and right of personal liberty are Australians before they set foot on the ship which brings them hither. Those who leave their fatherland because they cannot swallow the worm-eaten lies of the divine right of kings to murder peasants are Australian by instinct. Australian and Republican are synonymous. End quote. So, by having Lawson point out many times in the City Bushman that Banjo seems to be acting a lot more like his class-ridden European ancestors, he's beginning to make a distinction here. This isn't just a debate between the country and the city. The debate had now been raging for five weeks, and after Edward Dyson's input, others felt the need to voice their opinions on the subject, the first being an individual who simply went by the initials HHCC. It's been theorised that this might have been Lawson using a nom de plume, but in reality it was probably more likely Herbert Humphrey Cripps Clark, though he usually went by his own pen name of the two C's. Relatively little is known about Clark, only that he was born in Surrey, England, immigrated out to Australia at the age of 18, and became a grazier outside of Goulburn, and also that he had something to say in this debate. The poem was titled An Overflow of Clancy, an obvious parody of Clancy of the Overflow. Published just before The Man from Snowy River, Clancy perfectly summed up Banjo's thoughts of the city versus country debate, as the entire poem is not written from Clancy's perspective at all, but rather from the nameless city dweller who is daydreaming about what an incredible and romantic life this Clancy must have. Published on the 20th of August, it goes as follows. I've read the banjo's letter, and I'm glad he's found a better billet than he had upon the station where I met him years ago. He was a slushy then for Scotty, but the bushland sent him dotty, so he rose up William Riley and departed down below. He rolled up very gladly, for he had bush fever badly, when he left the smoke to wander where the wattle blossoms wave. But a course of stag and brownie seems to make the bush truck towny kind of weaker on the wattle and the bushman's lonely grave. Safe in town he spins romances of the bush until one fancies that it's all top boots and choruses, kegs of rum and wisps of grass, and the sheep off camp go stringing where the boss in charge is singing, whilst we blow the cool tobacco smoke and watch the white wreaths pass. Yet, I guess the bee feels fitter in a bilt shirt and hard hitter than he would weigh down the cooper in a flannel smock and moles. For the city cove has leisure to indulge in stocks of pleasure, but the drover's only pastime cooking, what's this, on the coals? And the pub hath friends to meet him, and between the acts they treat him, while he's swapping fairy twisters with the girls behind the bars. And he sees the vista splendid when the ballet is extended, and at night he's in his glory with the comic opera stars. I am sitting very weary on a log before a dreary little fire that's feebly hissing neath a heavy fall of rain, and the wind is cold and nipping and I curse the ceaseless dripping as I slosh around the wood to start the embers up again. And in place of beauty's greeting I can hear the dismal bleating of a ewe that's sneaking out among the marshes for her lamb, and for all the poet's skitting that a new chum takes delight in, the drover's share of pleasure isn't worth a tinker's dam. Does he sneer at bricks and water when he's squatting in the water after riding 14 hours beneath a sullen weeping sky? Does he look aloft and thank it as he spreads his sodden blanket? For the drover has no time to spare, he has no time to dry. If the banjo's game to fill it, he is welcome to my billet. He can take a turn at droving, wages three and six a day, and his throat'll get more gritty than mine will in the city where with Mr. Lawson's squashes, I can wash the dust away. HHCC wasn't the only one to take the bush-fevered townsfolk from Clancy to task. Francis Kenner gave us a Queensland perspective on the debate to balance the one Dyson provided from Victoria. Kenner's fame these days comes more from his political work, as he was a Labour member of the Legislative Assembly in Queensland, as well as an editor of the Brisbane Worker, a Labour-associated newspaper. One week after HHCC, Kenner dropped his own remix of Clancy, titled 
Banjo of the Overflow. I had written him a letter which I had for want of better knowledge given to a partner by the name of Greenhide Jack. He was shearing when I met him and I thought perhaps I'd let him know that I was stiff and perhaps he would send a trifle back. My request was not requited for an answer came indicted on a sheet of scented paper in an ink of fancy blue and the envelope I fancy had an esquire to the clancy and it simply read, I'm busy but I'll see what I can do. To the vision land I can go, and I often think of Banjo, of the boy I used to shepherd in the not so long ago. He was not the bushman's kidney, and among the crowd of Sydney, he'll be more at home than mooning on the dreary overflow. He has clients now to fee him, and has friends to come and see him. He can ride from morn to evening in the padded handsome cars. And he sees the beauties blending where the throngs are never ending, and at night the wondrous women in the everlasting bars. I am tired of reading prattle of the sweetly lowing cattle stringing out across the open with the bushman riding free. I am sick at heart of roving up and down the country droving and of alternating damper with the salt junk in the tea. And from sleeping in the water on the droving trips I've caught a lively dose of rumorism in my back and in my knee. And in spite of verse it's certain that the sky's a leaky curtain. It may suit the banjo nicely but it's never suited me. And the bush is very pretty when you view it from the city, but it loses all its beauty when you face it on the pad, and the wildernesses haunt you and the plains extended daunt you, till at times you come to fancy life will surely drive you mad. But I somehow often fancy that I'd rather not be Clancy, that I'd like to be the banjo where the people come and go, when instead of framing curses I'd be writing charming verses, though I scarcely think he'd swap me, banjo of the overflow. So that's four poems in a row that have roundly criticised Banjo's persistent romanticism of bush life, and it seems that the city bushman had at least a decent amount to think over. Was this going to change his mind, or at least make him see the world from the perspective of those who walked the road rather than saw it from the dignity of horseback? To see the loneliness as well as the beauty of the sunlit plains? To perhaps think of the drover as someone who worked to weariness so that Patterson's family could benefit? Banjo took a full month to formulate a reply, which is fair considering he was replying to four separate debaters, and his next poem published on the 1st of October was fittingly titled, In an Answer to Various Bards. Well, I've waited mighty patient while they all came rolling in. Mr. Lawson, Mr. Dyson, and the others of their kin, with their dreadful dismal stories of the overlander's camp, how his fire is always smoky and his boots are always damp. And they painted so terrific it would fill one's soul with gloom. But you know they're fond of writing about corpses and the tomb. So before they curse the bushland, they should let their fancy range, and take something for their livers and be cheerful for a change. Now, for instance, Mr. Lawson. Well, of course, we almost cried at the sorrowful description how his little Arvy died. And we lacrimosed in silence when his father's mate was slain. Then he went and killed the father and we had to weep again. Ben Duggan and Jack Denver, too, he caused them to expire. After which he cooked the grandeur of Jack Dunn of Nevertire. And no doubt the bush is wretched if you judge it by the groan of the sad and soulful poet in a graveyard of his own. And he spoke in terms prophetic of a revolution's heat, when the world should hear the clamber of those people in the street. But the shearer chaps who started it, why, he rounds on them the blame, and he calls them agitators who are living on the game. But I overwrite the bushman? Well, I own without a doubt that I always see the hero in the man from furthest out. I would never contemplate him through an atmosphere of gloom, and a bushman never struck me as a subject for the tomb. If it ain't all golden sunshine where the wattle branches wave, well, it ain't all damp and dismal, and it ain't a lonely grave. And of course there's no denying that the bushman's life is rough, but a man can easy stand it if he's built of sterling stuff. Though it's seldom that the drover gets a bed of eider down, yet the man who's born a bushman, he gets mighty sick of town. For he's jotting down the figures and he's adding up the bills, while his heart is simply aching for the sight of southern hills. 
Then he hears a wool team passing with a rumble and a lurch, and although the work is pressing, yet it brings him off his perch, for it stirs him like a message from the station's friends afar, and he seems to sniff the ranges in the scent of wool and tar. And it takes him back in fancy, half in laughter, half in tears, to a sound of other voices and the thought of other years, when the wool shed rang around the bustle from the dawning of the day, and the shear blades were a-clicking, to the cry of wool away. Then his face was somewhat browner, and his frame was firmer set, as he feels his flabby muscles with a feeling of regret. But the wool team slowly passes, and his eyes go slowly back to the dusty little table and the papers in the rack. And his thoughts go to the terrace where his sickly children squall, and he thinks there's something healthy in the bush life after all. But we'll go no more a-droving in the wind or in the sun, for our father's hearts have failed us, and the droving days are done. There's a nasty dash of danger where the long-horned bullocks wheels, and we like to live in comfort and to get our regular meals. For to hang around the township suits us better, you'll agree, and a job at washing bottles is the job for such as we. Let us herd into the cities, let us crush and crowd and push, till we lose the love of roving and we learn to hate the bush. And we'll turn our aspirations to city life and beer, and we'll slip across to England. It's a nicer place to hear. For there's not much risk of hardship where all comforts lives are in store, and the theatres are in plenty and the pubs are more and more. But that ends it, Mr Lawson, and it's time to say goodbye. So we must agree to differ in all friendship, you and I. Yes, we'll work our own salvation with the stoutest hearts we may, and if fortune only favours, we will take the road someday, and go droving down the river neath the sunshine and the stars, and then return to Sydney and familiarise the bars. Banjo basically comes out with an agree-to-disagree mentality. Now, for me personally reading this, he sounds so similar to people who indulge a little too much in the fantasy of their forefathers. He was never a drover, yet he sticks with this idolization. Lawson's final response and conclusion to the 1892 debate was published one week later on the 8th of October and was entitled Poets of the Tomb. The world has had enough of bards who wish that they were dead. Tis time the people passed a law to knock em on the head. For twould be lovely if their friends could grant the rest they crave. Those bards of tears and vanished hopes, those poets of the grave. They say that life's an awful thing and full of care and gloom. They talk of peace and restfulness connected with the tomb. They say that man is made of dirt and die. Of course he must. But all the same, a man is made of pretty solid dust. There is a thing that they forget, so let it here be writ, that some are made of common mud and some are made of grit. Some try to help the world along while others fret and fume and wish that they were slumbering in the silence of the tomb. Twixt mother's arms and coffin gear, a man has work to do, and if he does his very best, he mostly worries through. And while there is a wrong to right and while the world goes round, an honest man alive is worth a million underground. And yet, as long as she-oaks sigh and wattle blossoms bloom, the world shall hear the drivel of the poets of the tomb. And though the graveyard poets long to vanish from the scene, I notice that they mostly wish their resting place kept green. Now, were I rotting underground, I do not think I'd care if wombats rooted on the mound or if the cows camped over there. And should I have some feeling left when I have gone before, I think a ton of solid stone would hurt my feelings more. Such wormy songs of mouldy joys can give me no delight. I'll take my chances with the world. I'd rather live and fight. Though fortune laughs along my track or wears her blackest frown, I'll try to do the world some good before I tumble down. Let's fight for things that ought to be and try to make them bloom. We cannot help mankind when we are ashes in the tomb. Lawson's final point that he tries to make in this debate is that while he might be critical of the outback and while he might seem melancholy, that is not in his nature at all. Lawson is unfortunately quite well known for his depression. But this poem here shows that 
Like so many others who go through that sort of thing, it doesn't define how he sees the world. He's somebody that sees how hard it can be, but he is also someone that wants to fight through that. And I think that's a point that Banjo, unfortunately, either didn't quite understand or understood and didn't quite accept. If you're expecting to find a clear winner of the bulletin debate, then you've kind of missed the point. While the two main poets never conceded defeat or admitted to a change of mind, there is a level of self-consciousness in both their works to show that they at least understood where the other was coming from. But understanding how someone's view is formed does not mean that you'll agree with it. Both sides concluded by being almost painfully conciliatory, though it was only Lawson who put his money where his mouth was after this public conference, leaving to Humpy's Bluey as a swaggy for six months, tramping through drought-stricken New South Wales to see the world from the ground up. Banjo, however, never did such a thing. Remember, this was all happening in 1892, right off the back of the Great Shearer Strike, which I detailed in Matilda, My Darling. Tension between city and country were high, and while Lawson, Dyson and Kenner, and whoever HHCC was, sympathised with the Bushman's plight and refused to idolise their sufferings, Andrew Patterson, the man who spoke for the squatters and the pastoralists, seemed to come at this in a way that to me seems an awful lot like something that is happening nowadays. Does anyone else know that we're in a pandemic? And can I just say that when I wanted to live through a major historical event, this was not the one I was hoping for. Anyway, while reading his poems and seeing his admiration and idealisation of the bush folk, while Patterson himself benefited from their work and saw no need to change the status quo in any way whatsoever, painting them as people who are more than happy with their life because they are hard enough and tough enough to deal with it, just reminded me of some of those people who applaud healthcare workers nowadays. Then vote for parties that strip those very same workers of pay, security and stability. His admiration, while absolutely genuine, does seem a little patronising, and ultimately a little hollow. Because that's what this debate was about in the end. This isn't about city versus country. This is an upper versus lower class perspective on such things. Lawson, Dyson and Kenner were all labourers at some point, and were either politically active or moved in circles of those that were. Lawson in particular didn't just rail against the injustices and hardships faced by those in the country, but also by those faced in the city, pointing out that inequality wasn't systemic to either country or city, but was rather a fundamental makeup of Australia, a point that still gets lost today as people indulge in this debate. Banjo might have admired the Bushmen, but he didn't know them, and he certainly didn't care enough about them to want to implement change on their behalf. In fact, the very Clancy that he'd written about, Thomas Gerald Clancy, penned his own reply the very same year that that classic poem was released. It was a criticism to this mythical being that Banjo had created. It pointed out how tough it was, like Kenner, like Lawson, like Dyson had. But a poem by an actual drover was never featured in the bulletin, and it is now almost forgotten, while the spectre of his myth lives on. The myth of a stoic, faceless man who gets on with the job, who doesn't complain, who never seeks to change his lot in life because he is content with the scraps that he gets, and he is hard enough to deal with it. And, in essence... That's what won the debate. The romanticised image of the bush, while resoundingly disputed in four separate posts and to this day, is unfortunately the one that the general public loves, and is the one that has survived. It's true of all people. We prefer a happy story, with a pretty ending, as opposed to harsh reality. In 1939, Banjo spoke about this debate, saying, quote, Henry Lawson was a man of remarkable insight in some things and of extraordinary simplicity in others. We were both looking for the same reef, if you get what I mean, but I had done my prospecting on horseback with my meals cooked for me, while Lawson had done his prospecting on foot and he had to cook for himself. No one realised this better than Lawson, and one day he suggested that we should write against each other, he putting the bush from his point of view and I putting it from mine. We ought to do pretty well out of it, he said. We ought to get in three or four sets of verses before they stop us. This suited me all right, for we were working on space, and the pay was very small. So we slam-banged away at each other for weeks and weeks, not until they stopped us, but until we ran out of material. End quote. Well, now this almost looks like a publicity stunt, but please bear in mind Banjo issued this statement decades after it had happened, 
and 17 years after Lawson had died. Lawson's life is famously melancholic. He married and had two children, yet his marriage was as fraught as his own parents had been, and he rarely lived with his family. He fell into depression and alcoholism, moved frequently, and racked up debts that saw him imprisoned in Darlinghurst Jail on more than one occasion. He died in 1922, aged only 55, and he was the first writer to receive a state funeral, which was attended by Prime Minister Billy Hughes and the soon-to-be Premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang, who was the husband of Lawson's sister-in-law. Though he often felt friendless in life, he was admired in death. He was buried in Waverley Cemetery in Sydney South. Andrew Barton Patterson went on to enjoy a life of success, travel and praise. He acted as a war correspondent in both the Boer War and during the Boxer Rebellion in China, and later served in World War I, coming back with the rank of Major. He also married and had two children, though his marriage was said to be a happier affair. He died in 1941 of a heart attack, age 74. He's buried in the Northern Shores Memorial Gardens just outside of Chatswood, on the other side of the harbour to Lawson. While reading other people's opinions on the debate, though most seem to acknowledge that there is no clear winner and this might have been by design by the two men, many still define themselves by choosing a side to show more sympathy towards, be it Lawson or Banjo. You guys might have picked up, I have a similar feeling here. However, this I feel is a rather damaging mindset that still exists to this day. This is not country versus city, like I said. It is not foreigner versus native. It is not millennial versus boomer. It is not us versus them. This debate was important, but in no way definitive, and it shouldn't be treated as such. Because hardship in the city is just as awful as hardship in the country, and ease in the country is just as fickle as ease in the city. I think one of the most obvious ways that the winner of the debate is recognised these days is the fact that while Henry Lawson featured on Australia's first $10 note, he was later replaced by Patterson in 1993, which is kind of the story of his life. And so it must be while the world goes rolling round its course. The warning pen shall write in vain, the warning voice grow hoarse. For not until a city feels red revolution's feet shall its sad people miss awhile the terrors of the street. The dreadful everlasting strife for scarcely clothes and meat in that pent-up track of living death, the city's cruel street. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.